0: Welcome to Green Bull Radio. I'm your host, Kendall Titchener. On the show, we share how notable leaders use environment, social, and governance factors to make a positive impact. Connect with Green Bull Radio on LinkedIn, Instagram, and Twitter by following at Green Bull Radio. And don't forget to subscribe to the show. Alyssa Berry is a principal and co-founder at IR Labs. She has over 15 years of investor relations, capital markets, and corporate communications experience. An activist by nature, she's raised over $1 billion of capital, led some of Canada's most successful activism campaigns, managed M&A transactions, and enhanced board governance frameworks. She was formerly Head of Strategy, Operations, and Communications at Artis Reit, Vice President of Capital Markets and Communications at Sandpiper Group, and Manager Investor Relations at Amica Mature Lifestyles, Inc. In this episode, we explore the link between shareholder activism and ESG. Thanks for joining us, Alyssa.
1: Thanks so much for having me, Kendall.
0: Well, let's get started. Uh, tell us about you.
1: OK, well, starting at the beginning, I, I wanted to be a journalist. And I, I was very fortunate very early on in my um I guess, pre-career to have a mentor uh, who was just incredible and ha- sitting down with him, having the conversations, trying to figure out the path of uh, my, my life and my career. He said, you need to be the one making the news, not writing about it. And I was very fortunate at that time when, uh, I guess, almost 20 years ago now, the start of the breakdown of uh, traditional journalism. And that was really the best piece of advice that I ever received in, in uh, you know, my career was that, um, uh, that piece of advice from that mentor. So I essentially went to school for communications and was very fortunate to work at a very uh, prominent stellar PR firm in Vancouver and began exercising my, my love for writing by writing communications plans, press releases, speaking notes for po- local politicians. Uh, so really, uh, really enjoyed that type of work. And uh, from there, like most investor relations professionals, I accidentally fell into the world of investor relations and capital markets and uh, was fortunate to work with um, just an incredible team at a company called Amica Mature Lifestyles, um, a senior's housing uh, owner, operator, manager uh, based in Vancouver that traded on the Toronto Stock Exchange. And I remember walking in on my very first day having no idea what an investor relations professional does, uh, but knowing uh, that I was fortunate and lucky to to be able to be in that seat and just incredibly hungry to learn. And uh, I I was very studious. I, I read up on every governance policy, read the TSX company manuals and tried to get myself up to speed as quickly as possible, joining every organization that I could, uh, finding mentors, finding cheerleaders and champions to help me. And I absolutely fell in love with the world of investor relations. And um, from there, uh, I was with Amica for about 10 years, right until we sold the company to Ontario Teachers Pension Plan in 2015, which was a, a really neat experience to go through an m and transaction, a strategic review uh, like that one. And from there, the CEO that I was working with at Amica asked me to help him start his, uh, his next venture, which was a private equity group in Vancouver that focused on real estate called Sandpiper Group. So I was there, T minus uh, 365 days, uh, really uh, doing everything from um, developing our brand, hiring uh, putting our office together, payroll, benefits, IT, really the whole startup uh, experience um, at Sandpiper, which was really, uh, really neat and uh, very beneficial for me in, in many uh, ways in terms of uh, evolving to, to start my own business now. But Sandpiper very quickly became a shareholder activist. It wasn't something that we originally embarked on or had put in our sort of vision for uh, the company. Um, and uh, and we were able to um, a very early on develop a, a very strong reputation uh, for advocating for positive change in the Canadian capital markets, particularly in the real estate space. So I was with Sandpiper for six years and uh, I was seconded over to a company called Artis Reet uh, based out of Winnipeg. Um, Sandpiper was able to essentially uh, take full control of that board. Uh, through uh, an activism campaign. And I was uh, brought in as a head of strategy to essentially help um, uh, clean up a number of uh, issues that we had identified uh, as part of our activist campaign, uh, but also implement ESG frameworks and enhance corporate governance, uh, overhaul investor relations, um, which, was, uh, which was really exciting. And uh, I worked with some really incredible people there which leads us to today, where I uh, have launched my own investor relations uh, advisory firm uh, with an incredible co-founder, Caroline Sawamoto, and uh, we're now um, in the early days, but uh, really fortunate to, to have some really fun work on our plate. So that's, uh, that's the uh, career history in a nutshell.
0: Very cool. You're very um, ahead of your time in a lot of ways. So... <laughs> <laughs> I've uh, been really excited to have this discussion with you. Um, I know that uh, shareholder activism is something I'm super interested in. We're, we're hearing a lot about it in the news, but there's so much, I think, demystification needs that needs to happen um, about what exactly that is. So um, on that note, what is shareholder activism and what is an example?
1: Uh, excellent question. And I, too, have been really excited about having this conversation and and it's certainly a topic that I'm, I'm very passionate about. And I love the work that I've um, been able to dabble in over the years um, as it relates to, to activism. And you're right. There's a lot of um, uh, ideas or, uh, or concepts that people believe that activism is that um, I, I try and work hard to be able to demystify some of those uh, concepts or stereotypes. So working through that um, essentially shareholder activism in my view is identifying opportunities uh, that exist in the capital markets and the public markets that are trading at a discount to uh, to what they should be trading at for a whole host of reasons. So if something's trading at $5 but is worth 10 or $15 um, to me, it's identifying those opportunities and they're probably trading at a, a, a discount for a number of reasons. Um, Often there's an overhang in the stock um, that could be related to previous acquisitions um, or certain parts of uh, a portfolio that are, um, that are lagging um, strategy is certainly uh, core to uh, reasons why that companies are underperforming um, and in corporate governance plays a, a really huge role in that as well. And just to kind of go through the um, kind of the steps of, what shareholder activism is, you find the opportunity, you accumulate a position. Uh, It needs to be a meaningful ownership position in a company to really have uh, some skin in the game and want to have some some sway and influence, and then advocating for positive change. So coming up with ideas uh, that are uh, achievable for a company to be able to implement that could ultimately bridge that value gap that I referred to.
0: So what is a proxy fight? And can you explain that process?
1: Sure, the the word fight is the giveaway. Um, So if you're in a fight, things have probably gone too far. So to kind of back it up a minute and talk through the process. So so you've accumulated your ownership position in a company, you've identified a company that's undervalued, you have some ideas uh, in terms of how to bridge that value gap. So you've got to take that next step. And that often um, it should begin with uh, some sort of engagement with the company. So as, a, as an investor, you're, you're usually reaching out to a CEO or a board chair to be able to have a conversation. Um, if those conversations uh, don't go as, uh, as according to, to plan, um, which they don't usually do, uh, whether you're rebuffed or dismissed or can't come to an agreement um, if things get, uh, if they go the distance, they they go to what is called a proxy fight. And the proxy is that ballot that as a shareholder, uh, a lot of people receive them in the mail um, and probably recycle them or their investment advisor receives them. But it's filling out that ballot uh, as an investor uh, in terms of um, key issues uh, that get voted upon each year or in between Um in between annual meetings, in which uh, case often a proxy contest can uh, can occur. And uh, I would say in, in terms of that, that proxy, the way that I like to give the analogy is just assume, uh, think about it in terms of you're voting for the best sports team. So you've got management's slate, list of directors, and then the activist has theirs. And, and ultimately, you want to ensure that you know, the best team is winning. So that would be sort of a, a proxy process. Uh, a fight is going the distance. So sometimes these things can really uh, get a little bit messy. We, in in Canada, we're a pretty, um, we're pretty good about how, um, how we're, we're communicating our ideas from an activist perspective and from the issuer or the public company perspective. Uh, sometimes there can be a little bit of mudslinging uh, with these uh, with these proxy fights you see a lot of that in the US um, and the regulators will sometimes get involved in in some of those situations but these a proxy fight can be very time consuming distracting expensive so you want to ensure that you avoid uh, getting to the fight at all costs
0: so I guess digging a little bit deeper into the shareholder activism world, what are some examples of shareholder activist goals?
1: Some of the goals, they're, they're very broad. Um, and we've seen a lot of really interest, interesting ones in the media as of late. They usually come down to strategy. Um, so a company um, a company strategy, they, they may have not shifted their strategy in many years, or maybe the existing strategy is not working, which is leading to underperformance. Governance plays a really critical role in many activist campaigns. Most of the campaigns that I've seen, uh, particularly in Canada, a lot of them are very focused around corporate governance and and often I see these fights get won um, over corporate governance as well. Uh, Capital allocation is another one. So an activist might be advocating for the uses of of capital the way the company is spending their money. So it might mean um, uh, the recycling of capital, exiting certain um, assets or or investments in a a company's portfolio, taking that capital and using it for other purposes. It might be for uh, other investment ideas, buying back your stock. Uh, perhaps for special dividends and distributions. So those are often things that are, an activist uh, is advocating for. Um, it might be transaction specific. So if a company is uh, going through some sort of MA or a significant acquisition or disposition, um, you, might, um, you might see an activist getting involved where they may disagree with the transaction and may believe that that transaction would negatively impact uh, the the value of the company. And uh, and so sometimes we'll see very transaction-specific activist campaigns uh, that are a bit of a a one-off. And then more recently, we're seeing a lot more ESG-specific campaigns um, where activists are bringing in some really um, uh, going beyond the traditional sort of governance issues that they've been advocating for and bringing in a lot more um, social justice um, matters um, into the campaigns. So that's a a more of a recent phenomenon.
0: So you've kind of, I guess, touched on some examples of what these goals are, um, but when is a company likely to be the target of activism? Are there any common themes?
1: So we get this question from time to time in the work that we do uh, at, at IR Labs, And companies wanting to make sure that they're um, they're doing the right things ahead of an activist, uh, even considering um, considering them as a target. Uh, So often it's persistent underperformance. So if your stock is lagging, like the example that I gave and you're stuck at that five dollars or maybe less for, for a very long time. And it seems that the existing our current management team and board is unable to bridge that value gap, um, that's that's certainly an opportunity for an activist to come in and uh, and advocate for for change. Um, Like I mentioned, sometimes it's event specific. So just considering every transaction, ensuring that the board is going through the proper process to evaluate that transaction and ensure that it is gonna be uh, accretive and add value ultimately uh, for the owners of the company. Um, so, so that's certainly another, um, uh, another consideration for, for being a target. And as I've mentioned a couple of times, governance is usually the core of these campaigns. So often if, if, uh, if a company is, is approached by an activist and uh, has no idea or is surprised, uh, that really shocks me. Um, and, and I think that would be pretty rare. I think a company, most companies would know when they're, Um, when they could potentially be a target. So looking at uh, board diversity, for example, if you've got directors um, or trustees who have been uh, on the board serving from inception and the company is 10, 15 years into its uh, life cycle, and there's been no change or turnover, those are things that um, are are of concern, or you've got a a board that lacks in diversity, um, in every sense of that word, um, that is of concern. Um, and looking at things like the governance framework as a whole, sometimes that could be structural to a company, but also ensuring that the company has the right policies in place. Um, more recently, implementation of a lot more diversity, equity, inclusion policies, and and looking at the traditional um, Elements of a proxy circular or a management information circular, where a company uh, each year outlines things such as board compensation fees, executive compensation, and policies around say on pay. Those are certainly matters that uh, that can come up in um, in activist uh, campaigns, and and ultimately companies need to ensure that um, their um, putting their best foot forward uh, in all aspects of their their governance-related work.
0: So this next question might be one of the most uh, popular or interesting questions that I'm going to ask, but um, how can a company prepare for and respond to activist activity?
1: Yeah, so there, there's two things in there. There's the preparedness and then the, the response. So hopefully if we're preparing we're not having to even respond to the activists. So in terms of preparedness, just staying ahead and ensuring that your board renewal and refreshment process is um, is very solid and that the company is putting in the effort to ensure that it has a diverse board um, in every sense. Uh, and and staying ahead of strategy. I, I think I, I am concerned that post COVID, um, whenever that may be, um, there's going to be a bit of a resurgence in, in shareholder activism. I think there's been some campaigns that have been put on hold while boards have been uh, putting their heads down to really deal with a lot of um, just kind of getting through the last couple of years. Um, so strategy is going to be a really, a really big one. And I think we're actually going to see boards um, really thinking long and hard about their current strategies and rather than looking at things, five, 10 years out, I think strategy is going to be a discussion that is going to be a lot more regular and boards will be looking at things such as two or three year plans versus sort of the longer term or in addition to the longer term. Um, so strategy is certainly an area where companies um, really need to, to focus in and make sure that they're strong. Um, the messaging and communication around the company, uh, there's a couple of um, Uh, of companies that we work with who really struggle to tell their stories and are doing some really great work, but there's a disconnect between what they're doing and how the market perceives uh, that they're doing. And so often that requires a bit of an overhaul to all of the aspects of your your communications. Uh, It might be in terms of the the key messages when uh, companies or executives are sitting down uh, with um, retail and institutional investors, um, it could be traditional um, materials such as investor presentations, uh, annual reports, even, even press releases, and making sure that the messaging is very clear. And, and now we're seeing a lot more as a reference the ESG and incorporating that into everything you do in a very tasteful way. That's a, another great way to, to stay ahead. Um, and we, we often see a lot of companies doing some really great work uh, from an ESG perspective, but there's a bit of a disconnect, as I, I mentioned, in terms of communicating to the market in terms of how uh, that's adding value uh, to the company. And in terms of your question around responding to an activist, if a, as we, we often advise, if, if an activist approaches, um, approaches a company, know engage listen try and find common ground and those that that initial conversation um can ultimately set the tone for you know how the the situation is going to unfold and i I think you can do a pretty good gut check for the situations i've been involved in anyway where you kind of know from that first meeting how it's going to go um you have a little bit of a sense of uh whether this is going to go the distance or whether this is something that can get settled um, uh, behind closed doors um, uh, pretty quickly. And in terms of also responding, leaving emotions and an ego at the door, um, it's, it's tough because no one likes to be told that they're doing a poor job or being called out for underperformance. But if you can kind of park that to the side and, and really be a good listener, um, I, I think that's really helpful in terms of responding to an activist. And uh, and at the end of the day, um, not all, but I'd like to believe that most activists, they want the same thing as, as the CEO of a company, or as the board, um, is to ultimately create and maximize value. So I think having a very open mind there, there could be some really unique ideas that an activist brings forward that, um, that perhaps the board hasn't thought of in the past. So I think coming into it with an open mind, listening, and uh, some preparedness um, is the way to go.
0: Yeah, I liked your, your point about uh, preparing for activist activity, because in the time that I've been doing this podcast, that is a reoccurring theme that there are companies oftentimes that are doing great things um, in the ESG space, but there is that disconnect between um, talking about what they're doing and also making sure that it's reaching the appropriate stakeholders. So that storytelling opportunity and and targeting that those stories so um, it'll be interesting to see you know if uh, if companies kind of start building out their their communications and investor relations teams to really help um, amplify the good work that that they're doing.
1: Well you make a really great point it's it's and we can speak to even some of the examples that we've seen where um, even recently we were helping a company implement their ESG framework and I sat down with Particular groups in IT, HR, operations, marketing, investor relations, and and really was able to gather some really great information about all the really great work that is happening. And uh, but realizing that these these various groups were just not communicating with each other, and uh, and there was a disconnect and a focus on okay, we need to push out a annual um, ESG or sustainability report, but. It really it, it's hard to report on on, um, on the initiatives if uh, if it, it if it's unknown in terms of what all the work is um, taking place that's happening. So being able to have really great communication and uh, and putting together uh, ESG committees and having champions within organizations who um, really have a passion for. Um, for ESG and sustainability and it's often a committee that a lot of people want to put their hand up for because it's also feel good, do good, fun work as well. So I, I, uh, I completely agree. There's a, a lot of companies doing just exceptional work, but it's it's tracking that information, reporting on it, and then communicating that to the, uh, the investor. And at the end of the day, the investor wants to know how is that actually translating into value creation? Um, for me.
0: ESG committee, I like that idea. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So how do ESG disclosures impact shareholder activism?
1: So ESG, um, most of the activism I've seen in Canada over the last couple of years has had an element of ESG. Uh, It's been mostly more on the G as it relates to governance, uh, but we're starting to see that that change. Um, I think an activist, um, and I can speak to the work that, uh, that I've done in, in looking at targeting various companies, we do a lot of work around reading every single disclosure that exists. Um, so going through uh, a company's Cedar, Edgar filings and, and reading prospectuses, proxy circulars, I like to believe, and I'm, I'm a bit of a geek um, as it relates to, uh, to disclosure, um, but I, reading a management information circular or proxy circular, I think you can actually learn a lot very quickly. Um, you look at things like the board, uh, the board composition, board uh, comp in terms of board fees, um, you look at who's serving on committees, you look at the committees that exist, you look at the frequency of meetings, um, you look at the age and tenure and diversity of the board, um, and and then tie that all into executive compensation and, and looking at uh, the makeup of uh, the, the management team. So there's, there's a lot that you can um, glean from reading the disclosures that exist of a company. I love nothing more than to be uh, reading the the messages of CEOs um, and quotes and things like that, because I, I really feel that that um, also can uh, lead an activist to um, have a better sense of what the commitment is for certain initiatives, especially on the ESG side. Um, so I, I think companies need to really take a very uh, a very good uh, look and deep dive into all of their various governance documents and making sure that they're, they're pretty rock solid and, and we talk about being best in class and everyone wants to um, prescribe to best practices, which isn't always uh, achievable, but always looking at just that regular overhaul of existing policies and, uh, and making sure that they're, they're relevant, uh, they meet the expectations of, um, of your investors.
0: So is there a correlation between investor engagement and shareholder activism?
1: I believe there is. And and this is, I'm a little bit biased as an investor relations professional to, uh, to believe that uh, good IR can uh, perhaps even abate activism. I, I think IR engagement is associated with increased investor confidence in management and the board. I think having a very strong investor relations and investor engagement program uh, signals to the market, the company's commitment to engage with investors, uh, which is a really great start. Um, having proactive and regular communication with your investor base, uh, I do believe that it can can lower the likelihood of, of activism. I, I get surprised sometimes where, uh, and I've seen this from the activist or through the activist lens, where I find out that uh, a CEO of a company hasn't even been speaking with his top investors or hasn't spoken with them in, in a couple of years or, or maybe not at all. And so being proactive as a company to, to really understand who your audience is, who your investor base is, and being proactive to engage with them. Um, you'll find out that there might be a significant institutional investor who prefers to be a bit more passive and and is okay with a a check-in once once a year. Um, Or there may be an investor on your your ownership list who who requires more regular engagement or or prefer more regular engagement. And uh, an activist, as I earlier referenced, the the more meaningful ownership position they have, so meaning the more stock or the more money they have invested in a company, um, is just going to give them that more influence and sway with management coming at a company with 10,000 shares, uh, and advocating for something probably isn't going to get you uh, you very far. Um, every shareholder or or unit holder should have a voice. Um, absolutely. But exercising that and demand and making demands of, you know, board representation or, or something of significance is probably not going to work out. But if you have, an ownership stake of, you know, depending on the market cap of a company, you know, you've got fifty million dollars or hundred million dollars, or you own ten uh, percent or close to ten percent of a company, that is certainly going to be something that's going to uh, to get the uh, the company's attention. I and I think at the end of the day, it all comes down to performance. So even if you have the best investor relations program, you've got you know an IR. An IR professional who's very engaged with the investment community, along with the C-suite, you know, it's it's not going to be effective if you're you're persistently underperforming, and that comes down to ultimately strategy and and uh, the performance or the financial results of the company. And to defer the uh, or to deter the activism, if you will, um, I think IR engagement does lead to probably more withdrawn shareholder proposals and perhaps mitigates the costly and contentious escalation of initiated activist campaigns. So if an activist approaches, I, I think it's it's key for companies to want to engage their investor relations uh, professional, whether it's in-house or an out um, outsourced or third-party uh, company that's supporting on the IR front, and really very quickly understanding are these issues um uh, do they have legs? Um, are are we uh, are we actually uh, going to be in trouble here? And what are some of the things that we can do to um, perhaps work with that investor uh, or owner in the company to to ensure that it just it doesn't go the distance like the uh, the proxy fight that I was talking about?
0: Yeah, I I kind of touched on it earlier, but I have been interested um, over you know the past year or so on you know are there stats that indicate um how how much ir teams are growing in companies because of this need and i i haven't been able to find any you know hard data on it yet but um it's just it seems to me to be such a a critical function now um, it'll be interesting to see if there's more hiring that's done in that in that space
1: yeah i think yeah uh, it's a really good point and as a, a- A data junkie, I'd love to get my hands on on that information. Um, It seems like a really cool research study to pursue. I think in in Canada, um, one of the observations that I have is um, we we're still professionalizing investor relations, whereas in the U.S., uh, an investor relations professional is really actually viewed as a professional who has a voice at the at the boardroom table, who can walk into the CEO's office and share ideas, have influence, um, not to say that doesn't exist in Canada, there's a lot of really incredible IR professionals that have had the, the good fortune of meeting uh, throughout my career and learning from, uh, but we're still kind of elevating our game uh, compared to other parts of the world.
0: So why are activists incorporating ESG concepts into their campaigns?
1: Well, two, uh, 2020 was a very interesting year for her for many reasons, and I think since then we've really seen a rise, uh, and in particular in the US, for social justice-related concepts that are getting added into activist campaigns. Um, the simple answer to, to why activists are incorporating ESG into their campaigns, it, it resonates. So to win over, in particular, that institutional investor who is really focused on those issues, um, I don't want to say it's an easy win, but that's certainly uh, something that um, will influence the vote for the institutional investor. Um, I I read somewhere recently that BlackRock uh, had issued a memo concerning proxy voting policies and um, stated that their their expectation is that the directors on boards um, of the companies that they're investing in have sufficient. Fluency in in areas such as climate risk and, and energy transition um, to enable the whole board. So rather than having a single director or a trustee who's a climate expert or energy expert, um, using air quotes here, to provide that appropriate oversight for for companies um, for ultimately their 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 plans. So I, I think as we see more institutional investors. Making um, making changes or making statements like that um, certainly that really evolves the whole investment landscape um, or investing climate, which uh, which includes uh, what the activist investor is advocating for.
0: So you've touched on um, how critical value creation is. So how does ESG link to value creation for investors?
1: Yeah, this is a great question. And when we're, we're implementing uh, ESG frameworks for our clients, we we get asked this question all the time in terms of how does this actually translate into value? And and I love when we we get to, to talk about that and actually see the results. So ultimately, ESG is going to make companies and markets more sustainable, like full stop. Um, so it's the right thing to do. But um, I think there's, as I referenced, there's a lot of really great work that companies are doing on the ESG front, but just really struggle with. Uh, translating that into to how it's creating value. So I think uh, ESG needs to be meaningful. Um, it needs to have impact. And uh, often you'll see when um, there's articles or, or research done around ESG, there's they usually refer to the three P's, people, performance, and purpose. So if, if your ESG initiatives can really touch on those three areas, uh, I think that's really um, very, very helpful. Um, Just to give an example, so something like energy tracking. So if you're uh, a public company in the real estate space um, and you're tracking energy consumption for your buildings and taking appropriate steps or initiatives to reduce the, uh, um, the energy consumption and make your buildings more efficient, ultimately that should translate into um, value creation. So you're saving money in certain areas or making your buildings more efficient. Um, and that's just one example. So I think in addition to, um, just a lot of the, the, the social side of just doing good in our communities and and for all of the various stakeholders of a company, um, the, the E and the G particular, um, have the ability to, To really make an impact in terms of um, uh, the ultimate value creation for investors. And I think also, the the investors, uh, the the profile or demographic of an investor has changed. Um, You've got your investor who is 20 years old getting their investment advice on Reddit, and you've got your 80-year-old investor who still calls up his investment advisor and reads the Globe and Mail every day. So I, I think companies really need to understand who their investor base is, who their consumers are, their clients, um, all of their stakeholders. And uh, you know, if you're doing, you're doing good work and and really uh, touching on some of the things that your, your demographics care about, um, that should also translate into um, value creation, particularly if you're in the consumer goods or a services, uh, service-based industry where, you're you're really trying to set yourself uh, apart as a, a leader in your particular space. Uh, and that might be on the social side where you know, you're really being able to um, gain market share by um, through ESG initiatives and particularly on the S on the social side uh, if you're doing good
0: work. Yeah, those are some great points about the, the changing and evolving face of, of investors and, and just how some of those priorities and maybe ideas of value um, are changing.
1: Yeah, it's, uh, it's a very unique world we live in today.
0: Yep, it sure is. <laughs> so um, on that note, are there any closing remarks you'd like to leave listeners with?
1: Um, I guess a couple of things. I, we're, we're seeing pressure from the regulators uh, as it relates to ESG, um, in, incorporating ESG into filings and disclosures. So encouraging uh, companies to get ahead of that uh, would be, would be uh, a piece of advice that I've got, uh, looking at what your peers are doing and just trying to stay in line and, and stay ahead of them. And uh, as I referenced, uh, data collection uh, it, it, it takes time for implementation, and uh, it, it can be quite the uh, the hefty process. So starting now, so that you're able to ultimately incorporate that into your your ESG framework, and, and hopefully create value. Um, and uh, I, I guess I'd say, um, in terms of a a closing remark, is. Um, just having a, a, a mindset of gratitude. It's something that I'm so grateful for and uh, I really encourage others to do. Um, I've been so blessed to have a, a really unique uh, career uh, and I'm grateful f- every day for every interaction and, and every um, piece of advice and wisdom that I've ever received in, in uh, my career uh, and also in my personal life. So I just encourage uh, all your listeners to uh, adopt a, a mindset of gratitude.
0: Thanks. Yeah, those are some great thoughts and a nice little piece of wisdom to end on, too. So um, how can listeners get in touch with you?
1: Uh, IRLabs.ca is our website, and uh, I'm on LinkedIn and um, and very active on LinkedIn. So happy to uh, receive uh, messages or engage that way. Uh, and our
0: contact information is on our website. Thanks for joining me on this episode of Green Bull Radio. I'm your host, Kendall Titchener. Please submit guest ideas and ESG-related questions on social media at Green Bull Radio on Instagram, LinkedIn, and Twitter. Thanks for listening.